And as we get into the book of Joshua, we haven't been teaching through Joshua or anything. It's kind of a standalone message. And so I want to just introduce maybe what's happening in the book of Joshua. God's people are, are inhabiting and inheriting the promised land. They're, they're gone uh, into the land of Canaan. Uh, this is the land that God had promised the nation of Israel. They're advancing God's kingdom. Uh, they're taking the battle into enemy territory and, and possessing what God has promised to them and, and for them. And, and as we study the nation of Israel, we see a really cool picture in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you uh, the quickest Old Testament, at least early Old Testament overview there's ever been. When we look at the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, there is a type or a picture for us as Christians today. It's not just an old man, God dealt with the Jews in the Old Testament, and now God deals with the church in the New Testament. Yeah, that's true, but I want you to understand that your Old Testament is a picture book. It's not boring, it's not dry, it's, just, it's not just old history, but there's actually pictures and patterns of New Testament principles that we can apply for our lives. And so let me give you a couple of examples. When we look at the nation of Israel, we know that they were in bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. And that, that bondage was a picture of sin. It was, a, it was a picture of their sin and their oppression by the devil. And they were delivered, if you remember from Exodus 12, they were delivered from Egypt by the blood of the lamb, the Passover. Do you guys remember that? And listen, all the way back in Exodus 12, and, and we'll get to the verse in a second, but I want you to understand that their deliverance as a nation from, is, from, from Egypt through the blood of the lamb is a great picture, it's a great type of our salvation. They were in bondage, they were oppressed, they were beaten down, they couldn't deliver themselves. And so God intervened and said, here's the method that I'm going to use. Kill a lamb, put the blood of that lamb on your doorpost lentils. And, and when the Lord comes through the camp, you will avoid and, 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 and not have judgment in your house. The firstborn in your house won't, won't be killed. And, and God sent uh, his angel through the camp. And listen, the firstborn of everyone that didn't have the blood on the door was killed. But everyone that just put their faith in what God said was saved. And, and through that event, Pharaoh told Egypt, or excuse me, Israel, get out of here. Get out of Egypt, right? And the next thing that we see is that they left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. And in your Bible, that is a picture of baptism because God parted the waters of the Red Sea. There was water on either side. The Bible tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there, were also, there was also a cloud that was above them. And so literally they were surrounded by water and they went through the Red Sea on dry ground. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 and 2, Paul calls that a baptism. He says, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so, and so in Exodus 12, you have, you have deliverance through the blood of the Lamb. And then you have a nation of people going through the Red Sea, being surrounded on all three sides by water, water on either side, a cloud above. And God called that a baptism. Baptism comes after salvation. God proved that even in the Old Testament. And then we find that the nation of Israel entered into the wilderness, right? You guys remember the wilderness wanderings. And listen, those wilderness wanderings were a picture or a type of discipleship. In other words, they had to go through a season where they had to learn to trust God. Do you remember when they got into the wilderness? One of the first things they said was, hey, we're hungry. <laughs> we're thirsty. 
And, and God miraculously provided for them. He gave them the manna from heaven. He gave them the water from the rock. Uh, Exodus 13, verse 17, it says, It came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest peradventure the people repent when they see war, and they return to Egypt. And, and the point is, Israel had to grow. They had to trust God. They had to grow in maturity because there was going to come a day where they were going to be engaged in battle. That's what we're going to talk about in the book of Joshua. They're going to enter into the promised land and literally be in a time of war. But this wilderness wandering, listen, it was a time of growth and maturity and dependency on God. And you remember, listen, God's intention was for them to go through the wilderness and then depart from it. Sadly, they stayed there longer than they should have. Forty years. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, you remember the story. Listen, Moses sent the spies into, into Canaan land. He sent 12 spies, and you remember the story. Ten of them came back with a negative report and said, hey, we can't go inhabit what God has promised us. It's impossible. There's giants over there, right? And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, let's go today. Let, let's go do what God has called us to do, and let's go inherit what God's called us to inherit. And you know that from Israel's rebellion, uh, they wandered for 40 years in that wilderness. That entire generation died, died in the wilderness. And I want you to understand that the wilderness was not a, a means to an end. In other words, God's goal was never to have them to continue to wander in the wilderness. God's goal was to help them mature so they would be ready to war in the promised land. You know, the truth is, in, in our church and in other churches, there are people that, that need to go through this same process. There are people, number one, that are still in bondage to their sin. And what they need is redemption through the blood of the Lamb. And those that are saved, they need to take that first step of, of obedience. And I'm excited about that because we have people doing that in a couple of weeks. That's baptism. And, and notice that before you ever get to the wilderness, baptism comes first. But then after you get baptized, listen, there's a time required of discipleship. And listen, you have to learn to trust God and his provision. And Israel had to learn to trust their leader, as in Moses and God leading Moses. And listen, they had to learn, on, learn to, to completely depend on God for their protection and their provision. The truth is that we have people that are saved and baptized but never grow mature in the Lord. And they're still wandering in the wilderness. And sadly, listen, this is not mean to be critical. It's, it's just the truth. Sadly, sometimes Christians wander for 30 or 40 years. And they come to church and they sit in the seat. And, and, and listen, they, they, you know, they get their checkbox checked. But they never truly learn to depend and walk with God. Depend on and walk with God. And they never enter into the fullness of what God has for them. Because Canaan is the point. And I know you, maybe some of you grew up in church and you heard the old songs about Canaan land and, you know, there's some bad theology connected with some of those things. Canaan is not a picture of heaven. And the reason I know that is because Canaan was full of enemies. There were battles to fight in the promised land. So you say, well, what, what is the point? Well, the point is God's goal was to get Israel to Canaan. It was the promised land. And, and so in your notes, look, Canaan, the promised land, is a type of spiritual victory and it's the fullness of the Christian life. In other words, listen, it, it's going into the place that God had promised the nation of Israel and, and letting him fight the battles on our behalf. 
That's what Canaan is. Canaan is a picture of the spirit-filled life and the victory that is possible for every believer. That's what it is. And, and again, I, did y'all pack a lunch today? Because we, we got a lot in here. Listen, we don't have time, but, it, but if you remember, Moses, Moses led Israel in the wilderness. Moses is always symbolic with the law. Moses could not get, the law could not get the people into the land of Canaan. Moses died in the wilderness. But listen, it's Joshua. Joshua, who is a picture or a type of Christ. It's Joshua who was able to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land. And by the way, they had to cross another body of water. Not the Red Sea, but they had to cross the Jordan. And when they crossed the Jordan, listen, there's a lot of cool things that happened. Again, that's another step of maturity. It's another step of separation. Jordan, the Jordan River was the thing that separated God's people from all the inheritance that God promised. And, and listen, they had been delivered from Egypt. They'd been baptized in the Red Sea. They had matured in the wilderness. But there was still a barrier that they had to cross to f- fulfill everything that God had promised to them. And it, it was the Jordan, and, and there's a lot we could talk about. But again, it, it represents us walking in our spiritual maturity. They crossed that in faith. When they got to the other side, they circumcised all the men of Israel. We won't talk about that this morning. The point is, when they got into Canaan, their flesh was not, not a prophet. You can't, you can't win the battles in Canaan in the power of your flesh. You've got re- to rely on the Spirit of God. And so, and so when they get into Canaan, Joshua chapter 6 tells us about the first battle that they, that they faced in Canaan, and it was the Battle of Jericho. Do you guys remember the story? All right, so, so yeah, you remember the walls, man. Okay, so J- Joshua chapter 6, it's on the screen. Okay, awesome. Verses 1 to 5. The Bible says Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. Here it is. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given thee into thy hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. Ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do in six days. And the seventh, uh, excuse me, and seven priests shall bear before the ark uh, seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city how many times? You guys know the story, right? Once a day for six days, on the seventh day, seven times. Listen, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets, and it shall come to pass when they make the long blast with the ram's horn. Can we get one of those in the worship set, by the way? Ram's horn. When they make the long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. That's why you know they weren't Baptists. Hello? (laughs) I'm trying to loosen y'all up a little bit. Just because I know what's coming in the message. All right. And the Bible says, The wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And so listen, the first battle, they had clear commandment of the Lord. This is how you're going to do it. I've already given you the victory. Here's all you got to do. You do what I say. I've already given you the king, the city, and the mighty men. You just do what I tell you to do. So he, gave, he commanded the victory. He gave them the specifics of the battle. He does say that everybody's supposed to participate, all ye men of war, 100% participation. And then he said in, in, in verses 17 to 19, hey, when you take the city, all the gold, all the vessels of brass and iron, they are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. And so in other words, the, 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 the blessings of this victory belong to the Lord. They go in his treasury. Okay. And listen, you know the story, man. Listen, you, you did the planograph thing, planograph when you were a kid, and, 
and you know that the walls fell down, and, and you know, they shouted, the, the horn blew, they shouted, the walls fell flat, they overtook the city. What a great victory. What a, they didn't have to do anything other than just do what God said. And again, it shows that the power of our flesh is inadequate to deliver us any kind of spiritual victory. But if we'll just do what God says, he's the one that fights the battle. Who do you think made the walls fall down? It wasn't Joshua, and it wasn't his men of valor and his men of war, and it wasn't the ram's horn. It was the Lord. It was the Lord that gave the victory. And so listen, that's a pretty good first win. I mean, that's like, I mean, honestly, let's just be honest. You're Joshua, you're the nation of Israel. It's like, and the walls, I mean, that's pretty awesome. Well, you know, the, the truth is, after every great success, there's, there's a possibility of failure. And, and we see that their success is short-lived because Joshua 7 comes after Joshua chapter 6. That's real deep right there. You too could be a preacher one day. Okay. Look at Joshua 7, verses 1 to 5. But, and anytime you see that in the scriptures, man, it it ought to be a heads up. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of uh, Carmi, the son of Zabdi, uh, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, uh, which is beside Beth Haven on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai, and they returned to Joshua, and, and they said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai. And make not all the people to, uh, not, make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So there went up uh, thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled from before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote them, about 36 men, and they chased them from before the gate, even unto Seberim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And, and, and this is kind of where we wanted to get to this morning so we can make some application for our life. You know, Canaan was the land of promised victory. God promised Israel, you're going to possess and inhabit everything I promised to you. It's given to you. And it's not your power or might, it's my spirit that will win the victory. But, but listen, what's interesting is Israel suffered defeat in the land of promise, and the truth is you and I can suffer defeat in our spiritual life that we are to walk with the Lord. When God has guaranteed victory for us, why do we find ourselves still suffering defeat? Man, man why, why? Is our God not able? Yeah, He is. And so I think when we look at this passage, we'll see some practical truths for us that, that, that we, can, we can answer the, the reality that sometimes we do suffer defeat in the land of promised victory, and there's some reasons why. So let's talk about it. Number one, we'll suffer defeat in the land of promised victory when, number one, we rely on pragmatism instead of God's word. And, and you could write just common sense on that if you wanted to. Pragmatism, what's pragmatic, what's practical, when we rely on pragmatism instead of God's word, it puts us in a position to suffer defeat. You see, at the, at the first battle, at the battle of Jericho, God clearly revealed his plan and his strategy for victory to Joshua. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how you do it. Six days, march around the city once. On the seventh day, march how many times? And then blow the ram's horn, and then everybody, everybody shout, right? And, and again, all the Baptists would have a heart attack at that, but that's okay. 
And so listen, there were very specific instructions from God's word on how to see the victory accomplished. But when you get to Joshua 7, you see Joshua operating out of pragmatism. He sends men to Jericho to Ai. He did the same thing, excuse me, yeah, he did the same thing to, to Jericho. He sent spies. He sent spies into Ai, but that's it. He never got a word from God. He never got clarity. He never fell on his face and prayed and said, God, what is the next step for us? And here's the problem in your life, and here's the problem in my life. Listen, when we operate under pragmatism, we assume God's blessing and God's presence continually on our life. We just make decisions as if God is going to rubber stamp everything that we decide. And many times we make decisions in life that are contrary and not based on the authority of God's word. And we wonder why it doesn't work out. Listen, we, we have a statement. Most Christians say that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and... But, but, but bro, for real, is it? Is it? Is it the final authority in all matters of faith and practice? In other words, does it govern your home? You learned about that last week. Uh, does it govern your finances? Does it cover, govern your decision? Does it govern how you spend your time? Does it govern how you wage spiritual warfare? Listen, we don't want to operate under assumption. Because listen, when we do, there's impend, impending defeat waiting. And, and so listen, uh, we, we can't assume God's blessing and God's presence on our life if we're not operating under the authority of his word. The nation of Israel made the most simplest of mistakes, but every Christian in this room has made this mistake. We operate under pragmatism instead of the authority of God's word. We assume that just because I'm a Christian that, man, God's going to bless my life and, and everything I lay my hand to is going to be profitable and good, and, and, and yet we don't want to hear from God on how to make decisions. The second thing, and I think this is practical, again, for all of us, listen, when we operate under pragmatism, we, we make decisions based on human reasoning rather than God's word. What makes sense? Now, remember, you know, Joshua sent spies to Ai. Those spies came back to Joshua and said, oh, man, listen, it, it's not even really worth getting everybody armed up. I mean, honestly, look, I mean, you saw what happened at Jericho. This is nothing. Let's don't even send everybody. Like, let's send two or 3,000 at the most, because this is a cakewalk. We'll smite them, and we'll go about our business. Well, that's human reasoning. They, they, they looked on AI with man's eyes, and man's reasoning, and man's understanding. And, and they even said, don't send everybody. Don't let all the people go. I mean, listen, let's not get everybody riled up over this. This is a small thing. Listen, God, God tells us in his word that man's reasoning, the wisdom of this world, is foolishness. And, and I want to just park here for a second for all of us. Look, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 says this, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now listen, at Jericho, it, it seemed pretty ridiculous to circle the city. You, nobody talk. Okay, so you know that there weren't small children there, <clears throat> especially girls. Anyways, okay. I'm sorry. I have two girls. I'm sorry. I can speak with authority. Anyways. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> and my wife's got my back right there, man. Amen. Amen. 
Uh, it's good to, good to hear you in church today. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to circle the city and be quiet, just march around the city. It doesn't make sense to show up on the seventh day and march around it seven times. It doesn't make sense to blow a ram's horn. It doesn't make sense. Everybody, everybody shout. We didn't have to make sense. That's what God said. This is the way God said that you're going to achieve the victory that I promised. It's according to my word, and it doesn't have to make sense. Because the wisdom of this world to God is foolishness. I mean, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 25, Because the foolishness of God is, 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 is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. I think sometimes we are just too smart for our own good. And we live, listen, we live in a super educated city. And I'm thankful for that because we got great, cool stuff here. We got great medicine. We got great technology. We got great coffee in this city. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. There's a wonderful roaster right across the street, man, and I spend way too much money. I'm thankful for smart people, but. But can I just tell you that our human reasoning can never match God's wisdom. And as it relates to the spiritual victories that God has promised us, we can't, we can't boil it down to what makes sense and assume that God is going to bless that. We can't do that. That's not the way God operates. Human reasoning would never say to do what happened at Jericho. By the way, human reasoning would have never said in Egypt... Hey, if we'll kill a lamb and put the blood on the door, God's judgment will pass over. That, that supersedes all human reasoning. But it doesn't supersede God's reasoning. God even tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 that the preaching of the cross, Jesus Christ's cross, is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. I mean, I mean, the cross and the preaching of the cross in man's wisdom is foolish. People think you're an idiot for being here this morning. I probably shouldn't have said that. Okay. Some people do. But you know, you know the power of the cross. You know that it's able to save you from your sin. You, you've experienced personal redemption in Christ, as foolish as that may sound. That's the method that God chose to save those that would believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21, For after the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, the world by wisdom knew not God. They were too smart for their own good. And it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Can I just tell you, because we live in such an educated city, and I'll move on so we can get your notes filled in so nobody has a heart attack, but, but listen... In this city of intellectuals, can I just tell you, instead of trying to have an intellectual argument with people and try to be smarter than people that, that don't believe in a biblical authority or in Christianity or in the gospel, can you just keep it between the lines and preach the gospel? Because God says that the foolishness of preaching is the only thing that can save those that don't believe. I don't have to match you intellectually. I can if you want, but, but it's not an intellectual argument. It's a heart argument. And it's between you and a holy God. And it's between the method that he chose for your salvation. And so, and so what we're learning from Joshua chapter 7 is they made a mistake because they operated under pragmatism instead of God's word. Here's the key we need to take away. There's no battle in our life that's too small to take to God in prayer 
and according to his word. There is no battle to, there is no AI in your life that you shouldn't pray about and seek God's face about. You're making a financial decision, pray about it. Seek God's face about it. You're making a a career change, pray about it. Seek God's face. You're getting married, pray about it. Seek God's face about it. Listen, there is nothing too small. Hey, God, we're going to be raising some money for for, uh, Bibles to go to Zambia. You know, it would be real easy to just cut a check or, or go online and drop in some coin and say, oh, here's what I can do. Why don't you pray about that? Why don't you actually take it to God because God may have you do more. He may have you do less. But if you don't take it to God in prayer, you're operating under pragmatism. And, and listen, that'll lead to defeat every time. Number two, what we learn from the nation of Israel is number two, uh, we can suffer defeat in the land of promised victory. Number two, when, when there's limited participation in the mission. When there's limited participation in the mission. And I want you to go back to verse three. It says, they returned to Joshua. These are the spies that they sent to Ai. And they said unto him, let not all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and smite Ai. They assumed victory, by the way, right? Hey, this will take just a second. Be right back. And make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So they went up with the people, about 3,000 men, and they fled from before the men of Ai. And so the point, again, human reasoning at its best, look, This is just too small to send everyone. Let's just send two or 3,000 people. There's a sad commentary in most churches. I don't know if this statistic is still true, but it used to be true that that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people are are engaged in 80% of the ministry. Can I just tell you, I don't think that statistic's true at this church, number one. I I don't think that statistic is true at this church. But I will also say that I don't believe we're we're operating at 100% capacity. In other words, we still need some people to get on board. There's still limited participation. And, and, and what they perceived was something that was so small that we shouldn't get everybody involved. Jesus viewed it totally different. As a matter of fact, he, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said in Matthew 9, verses 36 to 38, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And if you know anything about Matthew chapter 9, what follows it is Matthew chapter... See, you guys are already like halfway to preaching, man. And Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, it says that he called his 12 disciples... And he gave them power over, you know, unclean spirits to cast them out and heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And he sent them to be the laborers in the field. So, so the point is, when, when we have limited participation, we're going to suffer defeat. It, take, it takes all hands on deck. Even, even after the 12, in Luke chapter 10, I mean, listen, okay, Jesus sends the 12. You think, hey, that's enough. That's enough laborers. Well, in Luke chapter 10, it says, After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two by two. So now we got 70, right? 70 more. Before his face into every city and place, whether he would come. Therefore, he said unto them, the harvest, he said unto them. Uh, so Jesus re-preached the same message. It's okay to do that. <coughs> Hello? Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying. 
if you got a good recipe. Anyways, all right. <laughs> Make those ribs again. Anyways, all right. He, he says to them, the harvest truly is great. The labors are few. Well, we already got more laborers, Jesus. We had 12. Now we got 70. Yeah, the harvest is still plenteous. We still need more laborers. We, st- we still need more laborers. 12 wasn't enough. 70 wasn't enough. You know why? And here's the key in your notes. Look, because, because why is because every member needs to be ministering in the ministry. Every member needs to be ministering in the ministry. And, and there's no exception to that. And, and you don't want to be the exception to that. Uh, listen, the, the, you know, there's always a rule and then there's an exception to the rule, right? And the exception proves the rule. But in this scenario, you don't want to be the exception. You don't, you don't want to be the one sitting back while everybody else is in the battle, while everybody else is in the ministry. You don't want to be the one sitting back. And, and, and listen, you know, this thing's going to fall apart. We've already read it. They get defeated and, and men die. I mean, this is a serious business. 36 people died. A couple of thousand warriors are running crying to their mama. They have no faith in God that can give them victory anymore. So this is kind of a serious deal. After Joshua repents and they deal with the, the problem that's going to be the last point, in Joshua 8 and verse 1, the Lord gives Joshua some instruction, and he tells him, hey, listen, uh, the Lord said to Joshua, fear not, neither be dismayed, take all the people of war with thee, and arise, go up to Ai, see I have given into the Uh, into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. The Lord told Joshua, everybody needs to go. Hey, quit quit doing ministry in your human reasoning. Everybody needs to go. And and if we had the time, if we got into Joshua chapter 8 and 9, you would see that Joshua sent 30,000 men to set up an ambush, and he himself took another 5,000 35,000 people rolled up in there. They drew the men of the city out. They came in behind them and burned the city to the ground, and they killed them all. They killed 12,000 people in that battle. The point is, and you just, okay, yeah. The point is, they did it the way God told them to do it. And when we walk in the Spirit and we heed God's Word, there's guaranteed victory. So, So let me just encourage you this morning that the greatest gift that a pastor can do for you is to not do everything for you. That's the greatest gift a pastor can do for you because Ephesians 4, verses 11, 12 tells us that God gave the church some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, that's the maturing of the saints, so that they can do the work of the ministry. And we got it backwards in the 21st century, man, because we like to come and sit and, you know, if the guy's charismatic enough, which I'm not, but if he is, we'll, we'll watch him do his thing. And I'm telling you, limited participation always ends in defeat. We will never become the church God wants us to become. We'll never see the victory that God has promised this church until we all get on board. Until we all get on board. And, and, and I'm not being critical at all, but I'm just telling you that perfected saints need to be participants in the ministry. You, you need to be, and, and listen, some of you may not be ready for that. I get that. You may not be ready to teach a class or to disciple somebody. Did I mention we have a process? I only mention that like every Sunday and Wednesday. And it starts with discipleship. And then it goes to ministry tools and training. 
and then it goes to LFBI. And, and while you're doing that, that's not just class, that's an applied science. It's not just, hey, let me go take some notes. No, while you're taking notes, we're going to have you engaged in ministry. Taking the Word of God and, and sharing it with people. Evangelizing the lost. Teaching the saved. And, and I'm just telling you that, listen, we have to get on board together if we're ever going to see the victory that God has promised our church. And let me also say that I'm not asking you to try harder. I'm not asking you to try harder. What I'm asking you to do is make yourself available so that the Spirit of God can use you. I mean, that's what Canaan is. It's a type of the Spirit-filled life. By the way, they tried to fight the battle of AI in their flesh. It failed. So God is not asking us to try harder. What God is asking us to do is just surrender to Him. And walk in his victory. And, and let's all do it together. Let's all do it together. And, and you know, it, it takes all of us. And again, man, I'm, I'm thankful we don't have a church that's the old 80-20 rule, you know. It, it'd be nice to have a church that's 100%. That's, that's all of us. And if you're watching online, that's you too. It takes 100%. We can't do it. We can't do it fractured. We can't. Number three. The last warning is this. We'll, we'll suffer defeat in the land of promised victory. Number three. And this is really the point of the passage. When we have a low view of personal sin as it relates to our church body. When we have a low view of personal sin as it relates to our, our church body. And, and you may not have caught the verse, but, but when we read Joshua 7, verses 1 to 5, you know, we read about them sending the people, and, and man, they sent the 3,000, and all these different things, but verse 1 really, really, really is the key. Verse 1, but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. When you read that verse, it is interesting. It does say two things. One, it says that the children of Israel committed a trespass. But then in the same verse, it says that here's the guy that did it. So did Israel do it as a nation or did the individual do it? Now, you guys are smart, man. You, you must have read the verse before. The answer is yes. Well, I mean, listen, it's interesting the way that God viewed an individual sin as it related to a whole, to a nation. Because in God's eyes, Israel was one nation. It was one people. It was, it was one company. Yeah, they had 12 tribes and different people and warriors and all the different things. But, but God viewed them as one. And, and I want to tell you that, listen, the same is true of God's people in the New Testament. In other words, God views his people as the church, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, we were, we, me and my disciple were hammering out some of these, these passages this week. It was timely because it was right, right in line with the message. We use a King James Bible. We're not mad about that at all. So if you have previous experience with wacko King James people, uh, let me apologize. Uh, we're, not, we're not those weirdos. Uh, but we do believe the individual words are important and and especially as it relates to singular and plural. And, and so when you get to 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, it says this, Know ye not 
that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And let me just give you a quick English lesson. Listen, at least in the King James Bible, when God uses personal pronouns that begin with the letter Y, in other words, ye or you, he's talking to plural. He's talking to a group of people. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, to the believers at Corinth. And so when he says, know ye, we're all from Alabama. Well, some of us are from Alabama. Hey, y'all. And if you jaw don't drop when you say that, you're not saying it right. Okay. Hey, y'all, know you all, know y'all not that y'all are the temple of God. He's speaking collectively. Many times, and listen again, not to be critical, but, but some versions of the Bible change that and, and, and they make the, the emphasis in the singular, but that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is the plurality of a body that collectively God views them as a singular temple. He, he actually, and, and, and again, he's establishing that in chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians because in chapter 5, there's a man that's committing open fornication. And he's saying, this one man's sin is defiling the collective temple. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 17, if, if any man defiled the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And he's just making the point. Many times we read the Bible, and listen, listen. if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God in you for sure. You house the Spirit of God. He seals you until the day of redemption. But you yourself aren't the temple. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body, and again, it's not the singular personal body, He's talking about the body of Corinthians. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. No offense, Christ didn't just die for you. He, he died for a church. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He, he died for a body, and he says, glorify God in your body collectively and in your spirit, which are God's. And so, and so the point is that our corporate body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Our corporate body was bought with a price. Therefore, we should glorify God in our corporate body. But when one of us chooses to walk in personal sin, and we all do it, but I'm telling you, we don't ever think about the damage that it does to the corporate body. We don't take into consideration that my personal little private hidden sin that only God knows about in me, that I'm not willing to let go of, is having an effect on the greater body of Christ that I'm a part of. If we did think that, we'd probably stop. So, so here's the key. Listen, we need to not underestimate the damage that one person's sin can do to adversely affect this body and the mission. You can't, you, can't, you can't really believe that we're going to operate at 100% participation and 100% efficiency if 25% of us are walking in sin. Well, that's foolish. You know, Achan, when, when they went through Jericho, it was very clear, none of the stuff belongs to you, it all belongs to God. Don't take any of it. And so what happened is Achan, when, they, when Jericho was defeated and he's rolling through the city, 
he, he grabs some stuff. He takes some stuff for himself. God calls that taking of the accursed thing. Joshua 7 and verses 19 through, through 21, it says this. Joshua said to Achan, and, and there's a long story that happens, man. Achan never confessed. He never came clean. He never repented. It was just obvious that something was wrong because when they went to battle, they got defeated. They weren't supposed to get defeated. So it was obvious, man. Joshua falls on his face. The Lord shows up and was like, get off your face. He said it just like that. I, I read it. It's just like that. Get off your face. And the problem was they weren't dealing with the, the sin in the camp. And, and Achan never came forward. And, and it's like God just went from the broad spotlight to the laser beam in the nation of Israel. And, and because Achan never owned his junk, God, God called him out. Joshua 7, verse 19. Joshua said to Achan, so now Joshua knows, everybody knows, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord of Israel, uh, God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. You see, at this point, Achan's still hiding. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord, of, the God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. He's kind of like, yeah, okay, you caught me. Yeah, here's what I've done. Right? Never repented. He just got caught. He's just making confession. Yeah. Okay. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels of weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. And so, in other words, Achan saw what didn't belong to him. He coveted what didn't belong to him. He took what didn't belong to him. Who did it belong to? It belonged to the Lord. God said, all of this stuff goes in my treasury. He even, listen, he even calls it the spoils of war in verse 21. It wasn't the spoils of war. It was God's. It's not your spoils. It's God's. It goes in his treasury. It, it, so, so Achan, number one, he never owns his sin. Number two, he redefines the terms. He calls what he did something different than what God called it. God said, you took of the accursed thing. He's like, uh, you know, it was just the spoils of war. He redefined the terms. We do that in our sin, don't we? Yeah, yeah we, we never own it, you know, until actually it comes to fruition. Like, there's damage, there's fallout, someone gets hurt, the wages of sin is death, right? And then it's like, oh, yeah, 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 I sinned. But really what I did was, and then it's an explanation of why I can justify what I did. We just justify it because, you know, we, we don't really fear the Lord or fear his word. We just just, we justify it. We take what's somebody else's. We take what's God's. You know, we steal it for ourselves. We cover it. But, you know, it's really, I mean, we got the victory, man. Why couldn't we take it? Well, because God said so. That's why you can't take it. You know, and I had this in my notes. I think I'm going to skip over it. The point is, when, when you take what's God and you steal it for yourself, you're a thief. You're sinning against God. And obviously, there's a really good opportunity for a tithing message right here. But most of you know Malachi chapter 3. Most of you know the question in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? Achan did. Achan did. Yet you have robbed me. But you say, Where have we robbed thee? And, and the Lord answers in tithes and offerings. You say, Jay, that, the tithe thing, man, that's Old Testament law. Well, you might want to read your Bible because the tithe was instituted before the law. Abraham, Melchizedek, that was before the law. It extended during the law, and it continues after the law. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, amongst other places, as do other Old Testament principles, such as marriage between a man and a woman, such as honoring your father and mother, those Old Testament principles that continue into the New Testament. And so, again, this thing of robbing from God also continues into the New Testament. So here's, here's what we can learn from Achan. Here's what we can learn about our own personal sin. Number one, we need to learn to repent while there's time. We need to learn to repent while there's time. Because, because here's the deal, man. Achan, as soon as Israel experienced defeat, he could have said, hey, y'all, I'm sorry. This is all my fault. This is all my fault. Here's what I've done. He could have done that before they ever went to battle against Ai. He could have done it between the victory at Jericho and the battle of Ai. At any point, he could have owned his sin, but he didn't. Actually, he never came forward. He never repented. It took confrontation with Joshua to get him to, to really say what he did. And the second thing that we need to realize is we need to realize that the wages of sin is always death. It's always death. Now, in this context, it cost men their lives. 36 people died in that battle. And, and ultimately, it's going to cost Achan his life. The Bible says in Joshua 7, verses 25 to 26, Joshua says, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire. And they had stoned, after they had stoned them with stones, and they raised a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor until this day. You say, well, man, why, why did God kill all of them? Why did God stone all of them? And if you go back and read the Old Testament, no, no person could be stoned for someone else's sin, which means that his family was in on it too. The Bible tells us in Numbers 32 and verse 23, But if you will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You see, we don't live like we're sure of that many times, do we? But God's... God's a hard man to ignore. And, and I dare say that many times in our own personal life, we somehow distance ourselves from the accountability we, number one, have to Christ, but number two, the accountability that we have to each other. I don't think we realize the damage that our personal sin does to our corporate body. Romans, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You say, well, Jay, I'm saved. Hey, bro, the wages of sin, it's still death. It's still death. You can't continue in sin. It doesn't mean that you're going to die and go to hell, but it does mean that, that the result of whatever your sin is that you keep walking in, your private sin that nobody knows about, the thing that you think if you've got everybody fooling except you and God, man, the end of that thing's death. The end of his death. And so the thing to do is to turn it over to the Lord. The thing to do when you're aching is to repent while there's time. You don't want to wait until the stones come your way to repent. It's too late. And they, there are saved people, man, that, that experience the chastening of the Lord. They experience the consequence of their sin in, their sli in this life. They, they, they leave this planet a little early. Because God is able, as a good father, to yank his own kid out of the pool. Because the chastening of the Lord is real. 
And the consequence of sin is real. And listen, we, we have to come to the place where we realize, number one, I owe it to the Lord to live right and be right with him. But the truth is, I owe it to you too. I owe it to you too. It's going to be really hard to do what God's called us to do if we're not together. And so when you can close your Bible, i got a couple of questions I need to ask you. Number one, are you saved? <laughs> because, because I dare say that, that they may, there may be someone in this room that, that, you know, we talked about a lot of different things, but if you're still stuck in Egypt and you've never experienced the deliverance that Christ can give you in salvation, you can experience that today. It's just through his shed blood. You don't have to do anything other than believe in what he's already done. So if you're not saved today, we want to give you that opportunity. But secondly, and more importantly for us as, as Christians, listen, do we operate in accordance with God's word? Would we say that we are, we are submissive to the authority of God's word in our life, or are we just really pragmatic? Do we just do what makes sense? God, help us to get back to the place that this book is the authority. God, help us to come to the place where we, where we take everything to God in prayer. We don't do that. I don't, I'm guilty. I don't do that either. We need to get back to the book. We need to get back to submissiveness to God's word. Are you participating in the mission? That's the second question. Are you an active participant? And maybe you're not right now, and maybe you're not because, because you need to grow. We want you to grow. We have a plan for you to grow here. We want you to grow. But listen, if you're just sitting back and watching everybody else do the work, I hope God's challenged you. We can't do it without you. We need you. We need every one of you to get on board because we have a mission to accomplish. We are advancing God's kingdom into enemy territory, and it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us, and I think we can reach the world. I believe we can. Not because of us, but because of him. I believe we can do that. Number three, is your personal sin affecting this body? Are, 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 are the hearts of God's people melting because of defeat because of you? And again, man, I'm not asking you to stand up and testify, but I am saying if there's sin in your heart and life, if it's affecting you, and it is, by default it affects this body. It affects this body. And so the answer to that is just to repent. Come to the Lord. Ask His forgiveness. Repent. Turn your feet in the right direction, knowing that the wages of sin is death, and you won't be the exception to that rule.